There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone. Due to overwhelming demand, we have added another date to our listener meetups in July with the Generation Y podcast. The event will be held at Love's Company in London on the evening of Monday, July 8th. Entry is free but limited and tickets will be available on Saturday, March 16th at 6pm Greenwich Mean Time from belletto.co.uk. That's B-I-L-L-E-T-T-O.co.uk. The tickets were gone within 20 minutes when the first two dates were released, so make sure you set a reminder. We will also be posting direct links for tickets through our social media accounts on Saturday, March 16th, so make sure you are following us if you want to come along. Thanks, and we look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 36 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. For early ad-free access to episodes, visit patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. The M50 is a short, 20-mile, two-lane motorway. It connects the M5 just north of Cheltenham and Gloucester, westbound towards Simmons Yat at the Welsh border. This small, rural stretch sits across three Midlands counties, Worcestershire, Gloucestershire and Herefordshire. Just before sunset on Saturday, June 18, 1988, a local patrol car slowed as it travelled eastbound along the M50 motorway. Walking along the hard shoulder was a young girl carrying a baby. The officer pulled in and asked if the girl was alright. 11-year-old Georgina explained that she was looking for her older sister Marie. 
Their car had broken down a little way up the road and Marie had left to use the emergency phone some time ago, but she had not come back. The officer learned that the 13-month-old baby was the young girl's nephew Mark and that Georgina's sister, 22-year-old Marie, was seven months pregnant. The officer put the children safely in his vehicle and told them to wait while he went to look for her. Walking on foot back to Marie's Morris Marina Coupe, the officer found no sign of Marie where the car had been pulled over onto the hard shoulder. There was also no sign of her along the verge or further along at the emergency phone, but the latch on the call box was open and the receiver was dangling from its cord as if it had just been in use. The officer then issued a radio message relaying to headquarters that a woman was possibly missing. Earlier that morning, Saturday, June 18th, 1988, Marie set out from the family home in Worcester with a 13-month-old baby Mark for a family day. They were going to visit her husband Adrian, 27, who was a carpenter and an army volunteer. He was on a territorial army weekend instructing a group of army cadets in the Forest of Dean near Simmons Yat, just a few miles shy of the Welsh border. On the way, Marie picked up her little sister Georgina from her parents so she could join them. The three of them drove to see Adrian and they left before sunset. Marie, a former nurse, had only recently got her license and was still a nervous driver. On the way home to Worcester, she wanted to take the country roads and avoid the M50 motorway, but she got lost. Her only option was to get back to the M50 where she would at least know the route. As dusk fell on the M50 near Ledbury, the oil warning light on the marina began flashing and the car broke down on the hard shoulder. Realising that the emergency phone was 700 yards behind them, Marie told Georgina to stay in the car with Mark and wait for her to come back. At 7.37pm, Marie made a call to emergency services. She explained that she had broken down and was heavily pregnant. Marie asked the operator to phone her parents so they could come and collect the children. Marie was put on hold. Marie's mother answered the operator's call and explained that her husband, Marie's father, was out fishing and had the family car. The operator tried to get Marie back on the line, but all she could hear was the sound of traffic. The operator began calling out, Mrs. Wilkes? Mrs. Wilkes? She tried again, but Marie was gone. Five minutes after this last call, the police officer found Georgina walking the hard shoulder with Mark. When the officer radioed in that Marie may be missing, the call operator had already dispatched roadside assistance. Georgina explained that a couple had stopped a few minutes earlier to check on her and were on their way to a service station up the road to also call for help. With Marie missing, four further police cars were dispatched to the scene to begin a ground search. A call was then placed back to Marie's mother, who was given the news that her daughter had possibly disappeared, while on the phone to the emergency services. 
Marie's mother then gave a description of her daughter and the pink and white maternity dress that she had been wearing that day. Just after 8pm, around 20 minutes after the call, the search to find Marie began. More help was called to the scene and soon over 50 officers including tracking dogs began a larger scale search. A helicopter arrived overhead using thermal imaging but was unable to find any sign of Marie. Police on foot explored the steep embankment while others scoured the ground on their hands and knees. At 8.20pm, Marie's mother was telephoned again, but by this time, already desperate, police had still not heard from her. Seven months pregnant with her second child, Marie Wilkes had completely disappeared from the roadside. After the rush of the initial search, information was gathered, and it became known that the emergency phone operator had heard the sound of traffic, a male voice and then the sound of a car driving away. With no sign of Marie in the vicinity, the search had to be postponed late that night to be resumed at first light. By the following morning, a nationwide search for Marie had begun, with her disappearance hitting headlines across the whole of Britain. The hunt for Marie was led by West Mercia's Detective Chief Superintendent David Cole. On the ground when the sun rose, more officers, dogs and air search and rescue were once again dispatched, combing the area in search of any sign of Marie. The first thing Crime Scene Officer Detective Sergeant David Perriton found was that the emergency call box had spatters of blood across it. This was the moment that the search for a missing woman, a possible abduction even, had shifted up a gear. They now had every reason to believe that Marie was severely hurt, or worse. The day ended no closer to finding Marie. By the afternoon, police were following up 75 possible sightings. One was called in by the editor of the ITN News. He had been on the M50 motorway the previous evening and had seen a heavily pregnant woman standing with a man near a light-coloured old-looking car at the location of Marie's disappearance. Marie's family were distraught. Her parents, Terry and Sylvia, were trying to stay positive for Georgina as well as Marie's three other sisters. Adrian was in shock and along with the family and police, made an appeal to the public for help. He said, I can only appeal to whoever may have her, for the sake of humanity, to let her go. I just want her home. She has a baby who needs her. There is no way she would have gone off and left our baby. I can only imagine someone has taken her away. I know of no reason why she should disappear. There has been no trouble at home, and we were looking forward to our third anniversary on Wednesday, and we were counting the days to the birth of our new baby, who in their right mind would want to take away a pregnant woman. After being asked if he feared Marie may not be found alive, Detective Chief Superintendent David Cole responded, I think that is a possibility we might have to consider. She could be anywhere in the country by now. 
Mrs Wilkes was travelling along the M50 on Saturday evening when her car broke down between Tewkesbury and Gloucestershire. She went to phone the police from an emergency call box, but halfway through the phone call, something happened. And by the time police arrived, they found no sign of the heavily pregnant woman and the phone receiver was dangling from the set. Police are following up 75 reported sightings, including one from a man who says he saw a pregnant woman making a phone call while a car was parked nearby with a man inside. After Marie walked to the phone box to call for help, she left her son Mark and younger sister Georgina in the car. When she didn't return, Georgina grew concerned, so picked up her nephew and went to look for her older sister. I walked up the motorway to the telephone box and I noticed that the phone was dangling down from the phone box. Mm. And I looked in the box to see how to work the telephone. And I didn't know how to work it, so I walked back down the hard shoulder. Spotting Georgina and Mark on the roadside, a man with ginger hair and his family pulled over and asked Georgina if she needed help. The man got out of the car and he asked me where my mother was. And I said, I didn't know because my sister went up to the telephone box to phone someone for help. Then he asked me if I had any Spanish. I said no, but I looked in the boot and he looked in the boot and then he shut the boot up. Police know that the family stopped at the next service station and arranged for a breakdown truck to go back to the Wilkes broken down car and they're appealing to the family to come forward. Mrs Wilkes has now been missing for two days and police believe it's increasingly likely that she's been abducted. At a press conference this afternoon, her husband Adrian was too upset to talk, but her father, Terry Goff, made this emotional appeal. I'd like to appeal to the ginger-headed man and his wife and three children to come forward with any information they have about seeing Georgina and Mark. Anything to help the cause and help the police to help us find Marie. And if your daughter's watching now, what would you say? Come on, Marie. There's no problem that's too big to solve. Adrian Wilkes would later agree to an interview. He spoke about how he was coping and appealed for witnesses to come forward. So, truthfully, at the moment, I don't think it's really got to me yet. And, you know, I've got a lot of family around me, supporting me. I've got a lot of people with me. And I've got no time on my own, own at all. And I think then I'll find got a big hole missing in my life. Do you think you will be able to rely on your family to help you in later months? Oh yeah, my both sides of family, Marie's side and my own family, are very, very helpful and very good support to me and my son. How is Mark? He's fine. He's fine. He's been looked after very well and he's, he's just fine. In fact, he's, been, he's better than he has been for the last couple of weeks. Do you think that having to look after him has helped you deal with the last few days? Of course, I'll, you know, I've got to be, I've got to look after him, I've got to be a terrorist strength. He's, he's relying on me, he's only got me now, as such. You know, I've just got to carry on and make the best for my son and myself. I've been coping okay. We had a few rumours saying that I'm under sedation, but I've not, I've not seen a doctor. And I am perfectly okay, and I, I'm just slowly coming to terms with the position I am in. All I can say, if there is somebody out there, just please think about it. 
and just think hard and just help and just come forward and let somebody know that we may somehow trace the person responsible for this crime. I'm fed up with the, the media hassling me, so I've, I've arranged this interview. Not only that, it gives everybody a chance and it may just help to hopefully somebody out there will remember something, just any little thing, and they will come forward. A thank you to the hundreds of people, the people that have phoned in with little bits of information, all the support I've had from neighbours, friends, and the colleagues from the Army Cadet Force and the Army. They've been a great support, and thank you very much. Very, thank you very, very much. Police worked on the numerous sightings of Marie, a man and a silver-grey car, building a picture of what they believed had happened. Their main focus, however, was on three sightings in particular. At the time of Marie's emergency call, a Mr Hughes was travelling the same direction as Marie on the M50. He and his girlfriend Miss Bailey saw what they thought was a silver Renault 25 on the hard shoulder, and a pregnant woman nearby. This stood out to Mr Hughes, because soon after the couple were overtaken at high speed by the same silver-grey car before it disappeared out of sight. He recalled that the registration number began with C7. It was then that an off-duty police officer, Inspector Peter Clark, was also travelling the same route with his wife. The couple passed Marie's parked car, and saw Georgina and Mark as they drove by. A silver-grey car suddenly appeared on the road in front of them, which had not been there before. Peter Clark assumed that this car had just done a U-turn in front of him, crossing over the central reservation from the other side of the motorway. Although today we have barriers which stop drivers making U-turns, back then on the M50, this was possible. Inspector Clark recalled that the car had four doors and a C registration. Clark then overtook the silver car and looked over to see a man with yellow blonde hair driving alone. He was wearing a blue and white shirt and had clothing hanging behind him in the car. Clark and his wife then passed a pregnant woman standing by the emergency telephone. When he looked back into his rearview mirror, he could see the silver-grey car pull up beside the woman. At this, Inspector Clark kept driving. Less than 15 minutes later, another witness, a Mr Farrell, saw a stationary silver-grey Renault three miles further up the M50. It had reversed up behind the crash barrier. A number of other witnesses reported the car at this location, some saying the bonnet of the car was up, and its hazards were on. The following morning, two days after Marie disappeared, this last witness, Mr Farrell, met with two constables and together they drove to the place he had seen the car. At the spot, one of the detective constables noticed a skid mark on the hard shoulder around 20 feet long. Behind the barrier, there was a grass verge leading to a steep embankment out of view of the road. Around 15 feet down the embankment, in a flattened part of the undergrowth, 
they spotted the lifeless body of a pregnant woman. No one had any doubt who it was. When the crime scene officers arrived, they discovered Marie, along with her unborn baby. Marie was covered in blood from a stab wound on her neck. She had suffered a broken jaw either from an assault or struggle, and there was a question raised as to whether it could have occurred on her descent down the embankment. Her body lay against a granite rock, and under her right hand were three coins. No blood was found on the motorway or the hard shoulder, but down the grass embankment four bloodstains were found in a diagonal line, indicating she may have been rolled or thrown down after being stabbed. Crime scene officer Detective Sergeant David Perriton, the same officer who located the blood on the call box, believed that the blood had been pouring from Marie at the time of going down the embankment, as opposed to spurting or splashing, and where Marie's body lay, a large amount of blood had pulled. It was his belief she had been at least injured at the call box and possibly beaten and stabbed in the car before the killer dumped her. The blood stains on the embankment led him to believe her fatal wound, which hit her jugular vein, was not inflicted where her body lay. Upon the road, the skid marks matched the witness sightings of the car parked behind the crash barrier, but they found no tyre marks which would have helped them identify the vehicle. This indicated that the car either had brake trouble or bald tyres. With all the information at hand, police believe Marie was killed and dumped within 15 minutes of making the call to emergency services. But there was one lingering question. Why would anyone want to murder a heavily pregnant woman? Marie didn't know prior that she would be making an emergency stop. It appeared to be a purely opportunistic killing. News broke of the death on the day Adrian and Marie would have celebrated their third wedding anniversary. In support, the Worcester Evening News and the Hereford and Worcester Army Cadet Force set up the Marie Wilkes Family Appeal Fund. Behind the scenes, police got a call from an Aberystwyth hire company. A man had returned a silver-grey Austin Maestro over the weekend. When the car was returned to the dealership, the owner found blood on the inside of the vehicle. The man who leased the car was pulled in immediately for questioning by detectives. After several hours of interrogation, he was let go after it was established that his friend, who was a passenger in the hire car, suffered a perforated eardrum which bled onto the interior. Both the driver and the passenger were cleared. The press continuously reported on the murder. Women feared driving alone and there were very few details being provided by police. On Friday, June 24th, the Newcastle Journal reported that an item of Marie's underwear appeared to be missing, which raised the question of whether it wasn't just a murderer on the loose but a sex attacker as well. West Mercia police assured the public that although puzzling, there was no indication that Marie had been sexually assaulted. By the Friday, an artist's impression of the blonde or yellow-haired man seen both in his car and walking along the hard shoulder with Marie was released to the public, 
He was described as white with thin, sharp features, a pronounced chin and a long, thin nose. He was likely in his 20s and of a youngish appearance. His hair was cut in the modern style, blonde, short and spiky, with possible yellow or orange highlights. He was of a smart, casual appearance, as if on his way to a night out. And finally, the man was believed to have been wearing a blue and white striped t-shirt with dark or royal blue trousers or jeans. Detective Chief Superintendent David Cole made a public statement that this man was not just a person who may help police with their inquiries. This man was a suspect. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A week to the day after the murder, police cordoned off part of the M50 and questioned around 4,000 motorists in the hope of finding someone who had taken the same route the week before. Then, policewoman Taryn Green helped stage a reconstruction. Dressed in a similar pink and white maternity dress, the officer walked the route that Marie had taken and stood at the call box for two hours, hoping to jog someone's memory. The unprecedented police operation on the quietest motorway in the country involved 150 officers from three forces. In the space of two hours, around 4,000 motorists were stopped and quizzed about their whereabouts a week ago. Police road checks were set up at every junction. Police also staged a chilling reconstruction of Marie's last moments before her death. 
Her beige marina was parked on the hard shoulder, warning lights flashing in the exact spot where it broke down. 700 yards further along the motorway at the emergency telephone where the killer struck, 27-year-old policewoman Taryn Green played the part of Marie. WPC Green was chosen because of her striking resemblance to Marie, clearly visible for several hundred yards in each direction, with a constant stream of traffic speeding by, her presence made it all the more incredible that no one saw the moment Marie was attacked. But Superintendent Alan Jones says last night's exercise could prove crucial. It could be extremely important if new information comes to light. Uh, it's the fact that only yesterday a, a new witness came forward as a result of the artist's impression. Someone who'd been on the M50 motorway had crucial um, evidence to give. And of course, that was six days after the event, so there was still a witness who could come forward. And here we are now, uh, seven days after the event, the anniversary, as I've already said. And perhaps there are other witnesses that we will uh, trace and will come forward as a result of tonight's exercise. Chief Inspector Ken Crane had already been busy tracing every silver or grey Renault 25 with a registration beginning with C or C7. 479 cars matching the description had been cleared, the cars being accounted for elsewhere. The 480th was registered to a woman living not far over the Welsh border in Triochi, mid Glamorgan. The whereabouts of that particular vehicle that evening was unconfirmed. When tracing the car, investigators found that the owner's husband was last seen in Porith Midglamorgan at 6.40pm that evening, an hour before Marie made the call. This man was then matched to a tip-off that had come in. A man had called police stating that his work colleague matched the composite drawing of the suspect. He had a history of violence and access to a Renault 25. At the time the reconstruction was taking place, police were already on the tail of Welshman Edward Owen Browning. The 36-year-old ex-soldier and nightclub bouncer regularly drove his wife's car. Father of a young daughter, he had short cropped yellow blonde hair and resembled the composite drawing too closely to ignore. According to Browning, the afternoon of June 18th he had been drinking, and after four pints, he had a row with his wife. He then telephoned his friend Kerry Evans in Aberdeen, Scotland, to say he was going to drive up and see him. Evans would later say he suggested Browning take the M50. Browning then visited his father in Porith, who also told him to take the M50. At 6.30pm, Edward Browning hung up clean shirts behind the driver's seat and got into his wife's silver Renault 25, but he assured police that he did not take the M50. Instead, he decided to take a longer, less direct route over the Severn Bridge onto the M5, the M6 and then on to Scotland. He claimed that after spending the night visiting Kerry Evans, he returned to Wales the same way. Under no circumstances was he anywhere near the M50, and he did not kill Marie Wilkes. At the time, Edward Browning was having an affair. His lover spoke to police and said that after Eddie and his wife's argument that day, he claimed that if he didn't get away from his wife, he might kill her. 
When questioned further about the apparently explosive argument Browning had with his wife, detectives learned that she too was seven months pregnant. Browning was asked what he was wearing on the day and evening Marie was killed. His father and wife said he was wearing a blue and white striped t-shirt. Kerry Evans said Browning arrived in Scotland wearing the same. Eight people described a man fitting his description in a blue and white striped t-shirt on the M50, but Edward Browning denied owning such a t-shirt at all. This t-shirt was never recovered, and the pair of stone-washed jeans he was wearing that day also never made it back home from the trip. Browning said he put them in a skip because they were torn. When asked if he had a butterfly knife, believed to be the murder weapon, Browning denied owning one. People close to him confirmed that he did, and he had been seen with a black one two days prior to the murder. Kerry Evans in Aberdeen confirmed he spoke with Browning on the phone. He had not heard from his friend in years, and was surprised by the call. He was also astonished that Browning said he was going to visit him immediately. Browning drove over 500 miles to visit Evans, arriving after 6am the following morning. He stayed for 11 hours before he drove home. When Eddie Browning married his then-wife, he already had a long-standing reputation in the Valleys. He was the eldest of five good-looking boys, and he was popular with the ladies. A bouncer at the time they met, he had been married before, but his violent tendencies ended that marriage only a few weeks in. After having a daughter, the pair got engaged, and the wedding was planned, but Browning was arrested for aggravated burglary. According to his record, he had been charged with over 20 burglaries in the area with a gang of seven other men, breaking into antique stores, businesses as well as several homes. The aggravated part of the charge came from the possession of a revolver and ammunition that Browning was said to have had and fired after one of the burglaries. So, as the wedding approached, Eddie was on remand in Cardiff Prison, but he promised he would be at the ceremony. On the big day, he arrived at the registry office which was just outside the prison gate. He stood by his bride wearing handcuffs and with a fellow inmate standing in as his best man. The mother of the bride spent the wedding in tears. At the end of 82, Browning was convicted of 20 counts of aggravated burglary and sentenced to seven years in prison. When sentencing Browning, the judge said, You were clearly the ringleader, and during the trial your dominance over the others in the dock was apparent. I regard you as a determined and dangerous criminal. While in jail, a dispute with another inmate ended in Browning pushing him down a flight of stairs with a broom. Five years later, Edward Browning was released from prison. So, on June 25th, 1988, a week after the murder and around the same time the reenactment was taking place, police quietly approached a social club in Pentra, walked in and arrested Eddie Browning for the murder of Marie Wilkes. 
He was interviewed for over two days before formal murder charges were laid. As news broke of the charges, Browning then in custody in Worcester was placed in a lineup and the witnesses brought in, but no witness picked Edward Browning from the lineup. It would be over a month after her death that Marie's funeral would be held at Worcester Cathedral. It was at the service that 100 mourners learned that Marie and Adrian were expecting another boy and they had already chosen to name him Anthony. The Marie Wilkes Family Appeal Fund, set up in her honour, had raised £16,000. It would be used to help Adrian and baby Mark get back on their feet and by the end of that year, the fund would increase to £36,000. While on remand awaiting trial, Browning went on hunger strike in prison. The Home Office was refusing to relocate him from remand in Birmingham to closer to home in Cardiff. On October 3, 1989, a year and four months after Marie's murder, Edward Browning's murder trial began at Shrewsbury Crown Court. Throughout the 26 days, Marie's family and friends were heavily represented in the courtroom. Browning pleaded not guilty. Counsel for the prosecution, Anthony Palmer QC, alleged that Browning had lied when suggesting that he never took the M50 that day. The theory was that after having an explosive argument with his seven months pregnant wife, Browning fled to Scotland. Along the way, still angry and under the influence of alcohol, the notoriously violent man saw a heavily pregnant woman on the side of the road and became enraged again. This was, they believed, a murder of opportunity and a moment of complete chance. Palmer claimed that on the evening of Marie's murder, Edward Browning had driven past her as she stood stranded at the call box. Soon after, he made a U-turn on the motorway, driving back past her again on the other side, followed by yet another U-turn in order to pull up alongside her. This theory corroborated all of the sightings of the silver Renault 25, driven by a man fitting Browning's description on the road, as well as parked near Marie. The theory was that Browning then abducted Marie, injuring her at the scene, putting her in his car, and then driving nearly three miles up the road where he beat her, stabbed her in the neck, and dumped her down an embankment. Three main witnesses took the stand. Mr Hughes, who together with his girlfriend saw the car and a man parked on the hard shoulder next to the pregnant woman. It was Mr. Hughes who then saw the vehicle overtake him at speed again when he noticed the C7 registration plate. Off-duty police inspector Clark who suddenly saw the Renault 25 with a C registration appear in front of him, causing him to infer that it U-turned at speed. 
It was also Inspector Clark who made the physical description of Browning and saw him in his rearview mirror pull up to the call box with Marie standing there. And finally Mr. Farrell, who saw the silver Renault parked behind the crash barrier at the location Marie's body was found. Browning acknowledged for the court that the registration number of his wife's silver Renault 25 was C754VAD. Browning's father, Ivor, took the stand as a witness for the prosecution. He told the court that when Eddie had asked him the best route to Scotland, he told him the M50. When cross-examined about the conversation with his father, Browning said he had no recollection of any such discussion. He had a total loss of memory on the subject, but the Crown had gathered evidence to support the theory that he had not taken the route he argued he had. CCTV footage had been pulled from the Severn Bridge over the entire period. Kerry Evans, Browning's friend from Scotland, also took the stand as a Crown witness. Evans confirmed that Browning arrived at his place in Aberdeen around 6.30am on the Sunday morning. Evans said the first thing he noticed was thousands of flies on the front of the car. He then noticed a smudge of blood around 3-4 to four inches in diameter on the Renault's rear nearside wheel arch. After asking Browning what it was from, he was told that he must have hit an animal on the road, but Evans felt the blood was too high up to have been from a bird or rather roadkill. It was strange enough for him to have questioned it at the time. The following morning, Browning got a bucket of soapy water and a cloth and spent five to ten minutes cleaning his car. Browning denied that the incident occurred. Evans believed Browning had been drinking, but according to Browning, he had only consumed Lucozade. Although Evans had not seen Edward Browning for some time, he noticed that he was not very talkative, with Evans making most of the conversation during the 11-hour visit. He believed that Browning appeared worried about the argument with his wife. One of Browning's brothers also took the stand and confirmed that after the media frenzy of a silver-grey Renault 25, his accused brother had mentioned that for financial reasons, possibly to get insurance money, he was thinking of burning the car. After presenting the witness accounts, the clothing, timelines and their believed motive for the murder, the Crown spoke of the theory that Browning had killed Marie in the car before dumping her down an embankment. Blood marks and traces had been found in and on the Renault. All bar two of the marks were not visible to the naked eye. The defence focused their attention on this aspect for their final address. Mr John Griffith Williams QC for the defence argued that if Browning went to such trouble to clean the blood off the rear wheel arch then why did he leave two highly visible marks behind for a week? He also argued if Marie was beaten so ferociously in the back of the car, then why was there no bloodstains found? Even if the seats were meticulously cleaned, blood traces would have remained. The defence also suggested that Browning arrived in Aberdeen wearing the same t-shirt and jeans he left in. These had no blood on them, and when questioned as to whether he could have worn spare clothes from the car, 
The defense hit back, saying that Evans had confirmed the shirts were still hanging in the back, so how could he have changed? Browning denied owning the striped t-shirt altogether, and it was never located, along with the jeans he had put in the skip. The defense scrutinized the apparent skid marks left at the location Marie was found. The tire expert was brought in who stated that after his analysis of the scene and the silver Renault 25, it was his opinion that the skid mark did not come from Browning's vehicle. In his defense, Edward Browning told the court, I did not murder Marie Wilkes. I had no occasion to murder Marie. I did not and could not have murdered Marie. At the conclusion of the trial, the judge, Mr. Justice Turner, reminded the jury that if they chose to convict Browning, they must do so with absolute certainty. He also reminded them that no witness had picked Edward Browning out of the identity parade. In fact, one witness chose another man. When the jury of eight men and four women returned from their deliberations, Browning stood for the verdict. It was unanimous. They had found Edward Browning guilty of the murder of Marie Wilkes. Browning was silent. The gallery erupted in applause. At sentencing, Justice Turner spoke to Browning. You set out to Scotland with your wife not knowing how long you would be gone. You saw on the motorway the solitary figure of a pregnant woman. Whether out of spite or rage or any other reason, you determined to wreak violence towards that person. It is plain you intended to take it out on her because she was defenceless and because she was pregnant. These are matters which single the case out as a particularly grave one. He then ordered Browning to serve at least 25 years of a life sentence. Marie's husband Adrian broke down in tears. He described the trial as being like another funeral. He said he and Mark could at least now move on with their lives and attempt to put the ordeal and the loss behind them. Marie's father spoke of his appreciation for the public, his love for Mark, and how he would now focus on helping his wife and other children, including Georgina, get on with their lives without fear. After numerous failed appeals, three years later in 1992, a psychologist mentioned something to someone at a Crown Prosecution conference. During the investigation of Edward Browning, she had been tasked with hypnotising one of the key witnesses. That year, Greater Manchester Police were tasked with investigating an apparent videotape which had been made of the session. In 1988, off-duty Inspector Clark the witness who had given a physical description of the man driving the Renault and also the evidence that the registration number began with a C, possibly a C7, had undergone hypnosis in order to jog his memory. 
West Mercia Police had withheld the videotape evidence. It was never revealed to either the Crown Prosecution or the defence. The reason? Inspector Clark, while under hypnosis, described a Renault with chrome bumpers when Browning's vehicle had plastic bumpers. He also gave a completely different registration number to what he had provided previously. C856 HFK. Browning's wife's registration was C754VAD. In the video, Clark could also be seen verbally ruling out the letters V and A. After studying the non disclosure of the videotape, the investigation then found that the West Mercia Police Force had failed to act on over 3,000 messages that the murder inquiry team had received. Edward Browning's murder conviction was referred back to the appeals court, and in 1994, the appeal was heard. At the appeal, Inspector Peter Clark described the enormous guilt he felt to have seen Marie Wilkes by the call box that day. He had not stopped to help because he saw the silver Renault already pull in. When pushed, he denied that his guilt and anxiety failed to allow him to disclose to anyone his hypnosis session. When it was put to Clark that he deliberately blanked out the evidence he gave under hypnosis, never revealing it, Clark told the court that it was not true in any way. According to him, all he was asked to do was answer the questions that were put to him. He said he had never been advised by anyone to not reveal the hypnosis session. The senior officer responsible for the session, Superintendent Stedman, agreed that he should have taken steps to ensure that the court was told of the video evidence. He described his actions as not in bad faith, but that in retrospect, he deeply regretted not doing so. The court found that there had been a neglect of duty and gross police failure. Lord Chief Justice Taylor, who along with two other judges sat for the appeal, agreed with Browning's defence counsel that had the jury been privy to this information at the trial, they could not be sure the jury would have inevitably reached the same decision. The defence described the original case against Browning as being based largely on innuendo. After three weeks of deliberation, and after serving five years of his 25-year sentence, the appeal judges found Edward Browning's murder conviction unsafe. On May 13, 1994, almost six years after the murder of Marie Wilkes, Edward Owen Browning's conviction was overturned and he was freed. I would like to say one thing for justice for all the innocent people that are in prison. Men, women, take heart. Today, it proves it. It does work. It does. does. If you fight for it. Eddie Browning emerged from the High Court arm in arm with his wife Julie, both of them claiming the truth was out at last and calling for the release of other victims of miscarriages of justice. Eddie Browning also said life behind bars had been hell. The physical scars, the mental scars, 
I've now got to start building my life back. My wife, my family, we've got to start building ourselves back up. The Lord Chief Justice spent three weeks deliberating before allowing Eddie Browning's appeal. He and two other appeal court judges decided they couldn't be sure the jury at the former bouncer's trial would have reached the same guilty verdict had video evidence of a police inspector with a hypnotist been made available to the court. The previously undisclosed recording suggested Eddie Browning should have been eliminated from the original inquiry. It was conducted by West Mercia Police, whose Deputy Chief Constable David Thursfield said outside the court he was disappointed with the ruling. But I have to tell you that I have sat in court and listened to the judgment, and at this stage I have to say there are no new lines of inquiry that are immediately apparent to me. If it weren't for the time lapse in which memories would have faded, the appeal court judges say they would have asked for a retrial. Meanwhile, Eddie Browning is advising the Wilkes family to go back to West Mercia Police in search of the truth and the real killer, while he returns to Wales to pick up the pieces of his life and put what he refers to as a nightmare behind him. After his release, Edward Browning moved to a remote farm. In 1999, a local newspaper reported that a former friend of Browning's had been paid off £25,000 by police following Browning's conviction. Apparently, Kenny Latton had informed police that before the arrest, Browning had admitted to him that he killed Marie. After Browning accused him of the payoff and of lying, he told police that Kenny broke into the house he shared with his wife and beat him with an iron bar. In court on assault charges, Kenny admitted tipping off the police, but he denied receiving payment or assaulting Browning, who ended up with seven stitches. Kenny's defence accused Browning of inviting Kenny to his home to confront him about the article and start a fight. Kenny Latton was cleared of all charges. So where are we now? Browning by this time had divorced his ex-wife and remarried. He slept with a crowbar under his bed to protect them. In 2000, Edward Browning was awarded £600,000 compensation for his wrongful conviction. Five years later, Browning's licence was revoked when he was found driving three times over the legal limit. In court, he claimed his drink had been spiked by friends. He was cleared of unlawfully carrying a knife in a public place after explaining that he used it to cut hay bales and had forgotten to take it out of his pocket when he left his farm that day. In 2008, with Marie's case technically regarded as an unsolved murder, there was talk of it being reopened. The original Home Office pathologist Dr Peter Ackland said that with advances in DNA technology, stored blood evidence may hold answers to what really happened but upon retesting, nothing was found. In May 2018, at 63 years old, Edward Owen Browning was found dead in his home in South Wales. News reports stated that although sudden, his death was not suspicious.
Between 2017 and 2018, police appealed once again to the public for information, hoping that the passage of time may lead someone to come forward. The police still believe that Edward Browning was guilty. New forensic testing once again yielded no evidence. However, the current Detective Chief Inspector Steve Tonks told the press that the case remains on their list of unsolved cases and, like all others, would be subject to continuing periodic reviews. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Don't forget to pre-order your copy of our new book, They Walk Among Us, a chilling casebook of horrifying hometown crimes. Available on Thursday, May 30th, 2019, from all good bookshops. Misconduct is a bi-weekly podcast that looks into lesser-known crimes, cold cases, wrongful convictions, and miscarriages of justice. Join me, Colleen, as I take a deep dive straight into the facts and theories of a new case each episode, discussing stories that didn't always get the coverage that they deserved. Misconduct has covered episodes that will take you through why Oakland, California's oldest cold case is still on the books, or how a botched investigation let the murderer of a 12-year-old girl walk free. Misconduct is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatching app. You can also find Misconduct on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Misconduct Podcast. New episodes of Misconduct are available every other Thursday, so make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.